0: to the Plugged In podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In podcast. I'm your host Alex Stevens. Joining me today to discuss his new paper on the new energy economy is Mark Mills. Mark is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science, where he co-directs an institute on manufacturing science and innovation. He's also a strategic partner with Cottonwood Venture Partners, an energy tech venture fund, an advisory board member of the University of Notre Dame's Riley Center for Science, Technology, and Values. And in 2016, the American Energy Society named Mills Energy Writer of the Year. Mark, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: It's a a delight to do this. Thanks for having me.
0: Your new paper with the uh, Manhattan Institute, which I believe came out in the end of March or in April here, takes a rather sober look at what uh, people commonly refer to as the new energy economy. Before we jump into the details of your paper, could you just provide an overview of what we mean uh, when we talk about the new energy economy?
1: Well, it's a good question because... (laughs) Everybody has their own definition. But what I was reacting to in the paper is what I hear a lot, both uh, in uh, policy circles. We read a lot in the papers, popular media. We see it uh, constant. And this is the proposition that the world and the United States are now rapidly changing the structure of our energy economy. In the very near future, we can or should or inevitably will Uh, power 100% of our energy from, quote, green energy. And when people say that, they are quite emphatic. They mean everything. And they also, when they say green, let's be honest with what most people think they mean and what they uh, often say. They mean basically three things, wind, solar, and batteries. So the paper is essentially addressing the claims that are made that we can and should uh, and rapidly will have an economy Almost entirely powered, or if not entirely powered by wind and solar in combination with batteries, that's the so-called inevitable transition to a quote new energy economy.
0: Yeah, and you ground your paper first in providing discussion about just exactly the role that hydrocarbons play in our societies. So, yeah, yeah could, could you just provide our listeners maybe a little bit of that context of where things stand right now um, as. People talk about uh, this energy transformation.
1: Sure. sure. I th- I, well, that's an important place to start, and that, and one has to do that. But I, I, I let me stipulate the obvious that wherever we are today, there are aspirations. So the paper is not focused so much on where we are today, but that's an important place to understand, as as so much as whether or not we can radically change the status quo. That's but the status quo is important to understand. So I guess the obvious starting point is to know, and most people don't. Uh, in general, and a lot of people who should know don't don't know the facts that globally the share of energy supplied by wind and solar is about two percent, two percent, and in the United States we're up to about three percent. So it's not nothing because they're very big systems. Uh, so that means there's a lot of money involved, but it's not it's not it's not it's not a it's not a transformation of the kind of people talk about. There's just not that much to be provided. So it's a it's real. Uh, it used to be close to zero, you know, decades ago. So we've gone from nearly zero, 0.1% to, um, in the United States, almost 3% for and solar. So that's, if you measure that in growth terms, you know, think about this, going from 0.1 to 3 is is uh, an increase of 30-fold. That sounds great. That's a big growth. But it's a big growth on tiny numbers are not very interesting. It's like me telling you, like, made you a, a 30-fold gain on a dollar, Right. you wouldn't be re- retiring for that. You'd much rather have a 30% gain on
0: $10,000. Yeah, there's obviously a disconnect, though, between that reality and the way we sort of hear people talk about wind and solar in the media and even in policy circles. the The main focus of your paper is to point out the flaws in these assumptions. And uh, right. a a big emphasis is placed on the physical limitations of these technologies could you well, yeah.
1: yeah i mean look here's here's the thing so that's exactly right so the the starting point's important because it says something about where the world is let me just quickly add another starting point fact that's important is because in the end even though you know i i am a physicist uh practice practicing one but i was at one point and uh i am an investor as well so What I've learned is is, is, like all of us have learned eventually in business and politics, money matters, right? (laughs) And money matters. So just let me quickly give a a financial benchmark. So the last two decades or so, the world has spent nearly $2 trillion on building non-hydrocarbon energy technologies, 2 trillion, which is a lot of money. Uh, And it has reduced the share of the world's energy being supplied by hydrocarbons by about two percentage points. So, you know, If you just think about that that tells you it's a pretty it's a pretty expensive proposition to try to make a significant difference that's pretty a lot of money not much change so the key here is how much change can you get from the physics of these technologies of wind solar and batteries we know we know a fair bit about about that because the physics are are well understood and and bounded we have to deal with mother nature so i'm not talking about effectively what engineers can build that's derivative to what physics permits. So I looked at two classes of what physics permits. One in class would be what you can't do, and the other class is what you shouldn't do or what you're pretending to do. I mean, by analogy, uh, pigs don't fly, right? If you pretend they do, you can kick them off a cliff, they'll fly once, but gravity wins. Right? Pigs don't fly. That's because of the physics of <laughs> gravity and how pigs are designed. So you, you know you can't make them fly. Uh, you could pretend they're flying by giving them parachutes. Uh, you could put them in airplanes. Get you in an airplane and say the pigs are flying, uh, but this is an expensive way to move pigs. So you shouldn't do that. So I'm not being slightly facetious, but <laughs> also being serious. Maybe there's a better analogy to look at the physics differences that I try to illuminate. Then we could talk about some of the sure. some of them as we relate to energy. But the analogies are important. On a more serious, less facetious analogy, helicopters fly, and airplanes also fly, uh, they, but they uh, are, have to do different things to fight the physics of gravity and deal with uh, the physics of friction and inertia. You could use helicopters to fly across the Atlantic. I mean, it's extremely expensive. It's not impossible, but it's a bad idea. So they work. So the, the category of physics that does work, but you shouldn't do because it's silly, that helicopters do work, they have some very specific value and utility, there's a multi-billion dollar industry, but helicopters used to fly across the Atlantic is a really expensive, uh, clunky, and, uh, you know, not just uneconomic, it's just a bad, a bad use of that piece of equipment, given the limitations of the physics around helicopter flight versus aviation. But, so that's a bad thing to do, An impossible thing to do with an airplane or a helicopter is you can't use either of them to go to the moon because they're both dependent on air. and There's no air in outer space, so they can't be used to go to the moon. That's physically impossible. So the energy world can be divided into things that you shouldn't do because they're expensive or silly and things that you can't do.
0: Two important components of these analogies that you're giving and what you're alluding to are the concepts of energy density and then the availability of uh, of these resources.
1: Exactly.
0: Um, so yeah, could you, yeah, could you just explain the concept of energy density and why it's important to uh, understanding that for, uh, describing the limitations of wind and solar? Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, you, you put your finger on the two key words, density and availability, which are, are both physics derived facts, right? The energy density of a fuel source, whether it's wood, coal, whether it's a battery storing something, whether it's gas, it uh, doesn't matter solar array, how much sunlight comes to the earth. Their core uh, quantity of energy per square foot or per pound are determined by the physics of the materials involved and, where, and what the things are. So that 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 tells you a lot about what's possible or not. So for example, uh, the easiest way to describe the difference between let's say batteries and oil because that gets us to sort of a Tesla battery uh, issue because uh, you know, all people like electric cars. I, I do too. Um, Their hope that they'll replace internal combustion engines, or uh, they'll replace some of them for sure. But here's the core physics fact uh, to store as much energy as a pound of oil has, you need 60 pounds of battery. Well, you know, that's a big difference, and of course, that what that translates to maybe let me put it in different terms and be more visual to store the energy in a barrel of oil a barrel just looks like what people imagine. The energy in a barrel of oil requires 20,000 pounds of Tesla batteries. So each Tesla battery is about a thousand pounds. So it's just, you've got a barrel of oil and 20 Teslas and they they store the same amount of energy. That means that you could certainly you could certainly drive a Tesla a fair distance with the energy store because they make the rest of the car lighter to compensate for the, for the heavy batteries, heavy fuel. But it means you can't fly airplanes uh, very effectively with batteries because all of your uh, lift capability is taken up by your fuel. This is why airplanes that fly long distances use oil, because it's very high in energy density. You can't change that fact. The physical chemistry of the batteries, the inherent physical chemistry of lithium chemistry, for example, is roughly 5,000% lower than the inherent physical chemistry of hydrocarbons, of oil, of gas, or diesel fuel. So you've got an inherent difference in the underlying physics of the energy contained by those atoms and molecules. And then that translates into other things, which I think are meaningful, which is the environmental impacts. If you need to have more pounds of batteries, for example, to store energy, you have to mine more pounds of stuff to make the batteries. It's a very big difference now, because when you measure in those terms, and that's where big environmental impacts happen, for every pound of oil, I have to sort of move two to three pounds of stuff to get a pound of oil to the market. But but that means, compared to a battery, I need 60 pounds of batteries, which requires making, moving, and mining something like 1,000 pounds of stuff to get the same amount of energy to the market. There's a very big difference in our material being done out of the earth, moved, and processed. All those things have environmental impacts. They're typically ignored entirely by people who are promoting these. these, so-called new energy economy as a greener path
0: yeah it's a very important point people uh, a lot of the conversations around this people seem to make it seem like the reason we use fossil fuels is some grand conspiracy or something but in reality it's they have physical properties that are extremely useful for uh, what we're trying to accomplish in building an energy grid and um, a lot of what you talk about yeah. is, is, sort of, is sort of laid well, out there well
1: for the conspiracy theorists i mean let's be realistic it's you think people have only a, a self-interest in making money, which is not a bad thing, by the way, but let's just say it's their only interest. And if it were the case that wind, solar, batteries, all this stuff were, were fabulously cheaper and that the oil companies were a conspiracy to hide it, right, really the opposite would be the case. They, these are big companies. They want to make money. They would embrace the a way to make more money if, in fact, it were more profitable. It's just not require subsidies.
0: Something that always comes up whenever I try to have this conversation with people who are proponents of renewable energy or are interested in that uh, future for our energy grid, a lot of times what they point to are levelized cost studies. And I would imagine that Mm -hmm. if somebody was here now, they would probably point to one of those reports and say, well, these reports are saying that, you know, wind and solar are already at or pretty close to grid parity with conventional sources. Your paper you lay out a pretty strong critique of LCOE uh, calculations and uh you talk about the fact that they don't take into account a lot of the hidden costs in a reliable manner. Do you mind just going through some of those limitations? Sure.
1: So the the LCOE, or levelized cost of energy is a not a real uh feature of any technology, it's a calculated uh number based on lots of assumptions about what happens over the future. So the, the LCOE a levelized cost of energy numbers that are put out to say, look, wind and solar are already at the same LCOE, same levelized cost of energy as say oil, natural gas. And therefore, you know, we already, we already have, you know, we don't have any cost penalty to society anymore is the argument because they're cheap enough. Let me be, um, Only slightly facetious. If that were true, then we don't need any subsidies at all. Because if they, in fact, are already as cheap or cheaper, the market has a lot of incentives to use cheaper stuff. Markets like cheap energy. Uh, (laughs) Or put differently, if you could make cheap energy and sell it for a higher price, you'd make a lot more profits. So I, I have to say that argument fails the logic test. If they were already that cheap, you don't need the subsidies. If you argue or propose to get rid of the subsidies, The Green Lobby uh, mounts the biggest campaign to protect the subsidies that humanity has probably seen in the half century of lobbying since World War II. But back to the specific problem with these levelized cost calculations, is that they have assumptions in them like, for example, you have to assume what you think the future cost of competing energy would be. So levelized cost calculations make assumptions about what natural gas will cost in the future all the calculations for these things assume natural gas will be more expensive in the future. That's an assumption. I don't agree with it, but it's an assumption. It's not a fact. If you don't assume that, if you assume natural gas stays at the same price or even goes down slightly, then the levelized cost number changes. It actually goes up. The competition doesn't look as cheap as it was because it's competing against cheaper energy. Of course, markets like cheap energy. Another uh, assumption in the levelized cost calculation is implicit in it is that it's a standalone cost for the piece of equipment. So the wind turbine or the solar array has a levelized cost over 20 years. And it has that cost as long as it provides energy when the market will take it Put differently. That cost only assumes that the market can use the energy when the energy is being produced. It does not assume that that technology has to provide energy when the market wants it. So if you were to say, what is the cost of a wind turbine or a solar array, if it had to provide electricity all the time, obviously it would have to have storage because there's not wind and sun all the time. So to get a correct number for what a wind turbine or a solar array costs on the grid, you'd want to know what it would cost to provide that electricity whenever the market needs it, whenever the lights or air conditioning or the data centers have to be on is going on today is the wind and solar supply on the grid is taking advantage of the fact that the grid is powered by other things that are available all the time. It's not paying for those. Somebody else is. And if your goal is to have no natural gas, no oil, no coal, no nukes, which is what Germany's doing and other countries, none of that on the grid, then by definition, the wind and solar have to find ways to provide electricity all the time. The levelized cost calculations don't include that. If you do include it, you roughly triple the cost of wind and solar.
0: Yeah, and actually uh, just this week we're releasing a levelized cost study um, where we're trying to bring in some of the context of – some of the factors that you're talking about here that are hidden—it's
1: well, the, 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 the context does matter, and all the assumptions matter, and, and the assumptions are debatable. So, like the Lazard figures have assumptions about the what's called the capacity factor—how often does the wind and solar ac- units actually operate? Okay, they have a number, and they—you know—they don't hide it; they have the number. But you can compare that number to actual data—how often wind and solar actually operates—and what I find is that their numbers are overly optimistic. So they would assume, and I forgot the exact number. I think they assume something like thirty-six or thirty-eight percent of the time that a wind turbine exists to produce electricity. But when you actually look at data, because there's lots of wind turbines out there, you find out that the actual delivered kilowatt hours versus expected isn't equal to thirty-six to thirty-eight percent of the nameplate. It's more like thirty percent. Doesn't sound like a big difference, but that's a twenty percentage, you know, twenty percent change in the total output of that unit. Put differently, over time. It increases its cost. It doesn't produce much energy. They make assumptions about maintenance, which I think are uh, uh, unrealistically low. They make assumptions about the output degradation over time. As solar and wind units age, they become less efficient. They make, I think, unrealistic assumptions about that. But it doesn't really matter what, what I think is unrealistic. Or not. The point is they're assumptions. They're not facts. So the assumptions, when you look at them, are all relatively optimistic about features that we know a lot about. If you tweak them, their numbers change a lot. The most important assumption that everyone makes is that there will be somebody else's power available to keep the lights on when my stuff doesn't run. That's the core failing assumption. And that assumption is okay when you know wind and solar are a small percentage of our electricity because there's always something else available to supply it. But in the world that I was writing about in my magical thinking paper, it's the world in which only wind and solar are supplying electricity using batteries. In that world, we have an astonishingly expensive uh, grid. But right? let, let me give you a, a simple factoid that you know, I calculated and was sort of scratching my head trying to see what I did wrong in this. I haven't found any error in this. In order to supply energy when you need it with a say a natural gas or a fired power plant, you store the fuel, right? right? That's to make sure you always have something, you put fuel in the ground, you put it in the tank, you put a pile of coal beside a coal plant. Now, we know how much it costs to store fuel. And if you store fuel, if there are you know exogenous events, you have fuel available. If your fuel supply gets broken, which is what happens in oil and hydrocarbons, equivalent of a cloudy day or nighttime for wind and solar. So question is, what does it cost to store say, a barrel of oil? Well, it costs about 50 cents a barrel of oil to store a barrel of oil. Then you can one can look it up. I use the Lazard numbers. What does it cost in oil equivalent terms to store a barrel of oil equivalent of energy in a battery? About $150 a barrel of oil equivalent. So $0.50 versus $150 to $200 to store a barrel of oil equivalent of energy. You, You can't store much energy if it costs you more than 200 times as much to keep that single quantity of energy in storage waiting for when you need it, which is, again, when the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow. And the frequency of the sun not shining and the wind not blowing, of course, is well known. We don't have to guess that. We have decades and decades of meteorological data. We know how many days worth of storage we will need to make sure the grid is always on over the next few decades. Because utility planners have to plan for decades, not for weeks.
0: Sure, and you alluded to this earlier, but uh, a lot of these hidden costs and things, as they start to accumulate across the entire grid, uh, we start to see them show up in the data and the prices. Um, and in your sure. paper, you provide some of that data from Europe where they're much further down the road to adopting wind and solar. Do you just talk about what you found there?
1: Well th- these data are, have been reported by other people, but we just went back to the primary you know re- redid the graph, so to speak, from primary data from european European Union. but if you if you plot out the uh, quantity of wind plus solar per capita per person in in the uh, various European nations and you compare that to the average cost of electricity in each of those nations, you find there's a one to one correlation essentially. Every single nation, as it increases its share of wind and solar per person, the cost of electricity goes up for those to those nations, and not just by a little bit. The difference between the least cost nation with the lowest wind and solar penetration and the high cost ones like Sweden and Germany is almost threefold. They're paying 300 percent more for their electricity for the privilege of having a high penetration of wind and solar. Sort of those people who justify that say that's 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 a that has to be done. But we have to be honest about the fact that it has a cost.
0: Absolutely. The, the impact that has on economic activity can't be understated. People, well, exactly. it, 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 in my opinion, people underappreciate the role that energy plays in, uh, in productivity. And obviously, it's an input into everything that we do. Um, so, well, it's a,
1: you're right. I mean, well, we do have one measure. Europe's GDP growth is about one-third of ours. And they have high cost energy, so we have that you know one to one correlation. You could say they have other reasons they have a low uh, economic growth, and sure. certainly there are. But uh, so the macro uh, fact that you point to is one we know in history is that for almost all of human history until roughly 200 years ago, something somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of every economy's GDP was consumed by producing food and fuel. Food obviously is fuel for people, and The industrial revolution, with the advent of hydrocarbons, reduced that to 10 percent, roughly, for all nations in the the West. So we went from 80 to 90 percent to about 10 percent of our economy associated with uh, producing energy. That—that's—that, in effect, even if you didn't have any productivity growth, that alone is an economic boon, right? You can imagine. We all know that. that, So the the irony is that uh, we're, we're going to go down the path of rediscovering this lesson by increasing the share of our economy and it's already happened in Europe uh, that's associated with with producing polluted fuel. This is a very bad thing and it's particularly bad for uh, low-income people and poor people.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah. And To some extent, the higher electricity prices are even further concealed by the fact that commodity prices over the past decade or so have fallen as well. So uh, the average person paying their electric bill isn't necessarily seeing the rise in costs that they would have seen if that hadn't been the case.
1: Well, the uh, U.S., we, we actually have pretty good data at the macro level on this. Again, we we know that the average cost of U.S. electricity, residential electricity, is up 20% in the last decade. Well, you know, okay, 20% over 10 years. Doesn't seem like a lot. I guess uh, some people are okay with that. I'm not. The question I have is why did it go up at all to your point uh, commodity prices particularly coal and natural gas prices have collapsed in the last decade and those two fuels provide 70 percent of electricity so if 70 percent of electricity is provided by two fuel sources which have seen their input costs collapse why didn't average u.s electric rates go down they should have gone down the fact that they went up meant that somebody got the money I just you know, I guess I would put it this way: Let's follow the money. Who got who got that money? Where'd it go? Because the savings didn't go into consumers' pockets. And I think these are big numbers. I, you know, I did a back of the envelope. I think that consumers are in America today are spending roughly forty billion dollars a year more for electricity than they should have been if it let the system evolve as it was naturally evolving towards increased use of uh, cheap uh, natural gas and coal
0: it's a pretty striking number and to your point earlier you mentioned that you know the the impact that it has on low income people given the percentage of their income that has to go to paying their electrical bill and paying for energy gas to get to work and stuff it
1: well certainly in england england and, and many countries now in europe they're talking in terms of energy poverty for uh, the lower quintile of uh, income earners because of the magnitude of their energy bills are consuming become the largest single Expense people have, we, you know. I'm sure you agree. We all agree. In, in the modern world, no one is saying we should get cheap energy at the expense of the environment in general. And this is this is never this is the sort of straw man that's thrown up. Right. The fact is, you want clean uh, environment with cheap energy. the The idea that we can get to a world that's profoundly different than we already are, which is, of course, radically cleaner than it was a decades ago, with Abandoning the, abandoning the system we have now is just, uh, well, you know, to use a, uh, the old Greek term, it's chimerical. It's, it's not going to happen.
0: And you conclude the paper with a discussion of Moore's Law and you assert that this disconnect between what we're seeing in terms of advances in uh, wind energy and solar energy and the way people are talking about it and things uh, is a uh, misapplication of that concept. Just something that's sure. sort of developed out of the the, the tech sector and
1: what's well, in a lot of people's heads. Uh, and I, I say this not by guessing because when you talk to people and sort of plumb when you have a conversation as opposed to an argument, let's say about the future energy supply with people who are we smart, right? They and they have aspirations. Uh, the the analogy we hear thrown all the time, and you hear it, we all hear it, is look, look at this smartphone and look what technology has done to uh, radically change and disrupt an industry. And that's the kind of disruption that's now coming to energy because, you know, photovoltaic cells are made out of silicon and, you know, wind turbines are controlled by computers. So we've got this disruption coming to energy just like we had disruption that came to the computing industry. So that analogy is, is uh, explicitly used over and over and over again in recent years. And it properly, we're properly amazed at what computing has done I mean, the difference between a computer today and 20 years ago is deeply profound. I mean, everyone knows this. So it's a, it's a common experience. You know, A single smartphone is uh, roughly 10,000 times more powerful than the compute power of a mainframe from um, 30 years ago. And if your smartphone used energy at the inefficiency of a mainframe from 30 years ago, a single smartphone would use more electricity than a skyscraper. Obviously, we've had profound improvements in the technology, computing, and profound improvements in its energy efficiency. So that's sort of a seductive thing to look at. Why we can do it again? The problem is, and that's people call that Moore's Law, which is which is Gordon Moore, the as you know, the co-founder of Intel, uh, penciled out that computing power was doubling roughly every two years. With the number of transistors per per uh, silicon chip was doubling every every two years. And That's kept going. It's been slowing down a little bit, but it's been going on for decades. The thing is, energy uh, used to do information and energy used to move people and stuff involve different physics. So They're category areas that are much different than comparing apples to oranges. It's like comparing apples to airplanes. They're not the same category. To make computers do what we've done, we have had to chase a piece of physics which involves using less and less energy to create the idea of a zero or a one. It's essentially what computers are about. How much, how little energy can I use to create the idea of a zero or one? And we've gotten very good at that, but that's creating the idea of a zero on this state of a switch being on or off. That's not the same as moving a pound of people or a pound of food or a pound of goods by airplane or by car or by truck there you can't do any of the magic the physics of the energy it needs to move a pound at 100 miles an hour a thousand miles that physics is fixed you can't reduce it you can get close to the minimum cost required but you can never do anything equivalent of what's called compression in video everybody's heard about compressing their files compressing a file it's digital means you take the white space out of the picture so to speak and store only the information of the picture It saves lots of bits. It saves lots of energy. saves lots of expense and hardware. You can do nothing vaguely resembling that with people. I can't take the white space out of a human being or a physical object to make it way less so I could fly it further, faster, with less energy. You can't do it. It's impossible. Back to where I started, this is also one of the things that's impossible to do in the universe that we live in. You, You could do those kinds of things in comic books, but you can't do them in the real world. So the category error of thinking that the computing revolution translates into an expectation of energy production falling, those kinds of disruptive changes is simply it's kind of uh, well, I'd say it's silly because it really is silly. But uh, to it, say it's silly sounds insulting. I don't mean to insult people. It, it's it's silly in terms of the physical reality of what the universe permits.
0: What, in your opinion is it that's allowed people to fall into that trap though where it's just not uh not recognizing this reality of the physical limitations of the world that we live in
1: to go to answer a question about why did why do people think that is it is the domain of psychologists not physicists so I, I' might I might have an opinion on the matter, but i don't sure. know my opinion matters i I think my my amateur psychology opinion is that that the energy successes have been so profound uh, over the last century that because the cost of energy is so low in, any, in real in real and relative terms, and its availability is so high, unprecedented levels of reliability in all of human history, it sort of fades into the background of what we care about day to day. We we actually care about it in a sense. You can have your car, you can drive, your, car, your house works, your computers work. I haven't met very many people who really worry about whether or not there'll be enough energy for their uh, uh, Google search to work, sure. right? I mean, you, you don't really think about that part, but everything you do on the internet costs energy, it involves equipment all over the planet. I mean, the average smartphone, used the way the average smartphones use, uses more electricity per smartphone than a refrigerator in your house. And if you're, if you're a streaming video fan, you're basically using close to two refrigerators worth of electricity, not in your phone directly, but your share of energy used to run your phone in these networks is quite remarkable. Most people don't know that. They don't think about it. That sort of that epitomizes the answer to your question is because we're so good at producing so much energy, so reliably, so inexpensively, that it's just faded into the background of matter and take a lot for granted. And, uh, you know, I hope we don't uh, learn the hard way that, it, that we're going in the wrong direction by making energy more expensive and less reliable.
0: Yeah, well, that that gets me to my last question. You know, my biggest takeaway from reading your paper was that all of this suggests that down the line here, there's going to be some major problems for the renewable energy industry. Um, That's not to say that, you know, they can rely on... Subsidies and mandates and things, and there's there is a role for some of these technologies to be used in some situations. Of course, it's unfair for me to you know ask you to try to predict the future, but if would you like to just comment on where you see the investments in these things? How do you see all that playing out?
1: Well, I guess a short way to put it is I would I would predict that rather than the old fashion that we were predicting peak oil some years ago. Uh, I would predict that we're going to face peak subsidies in the not-too-distant future. Governments and citizens will become less patient and tolerant of massive subsidies for expensive energy. But uh, it'll take a while. Uh, there's actually very significant roles for wind, solar, and batteries uh, in terms of the growing from where they are today. Uh, I, don't, no, I don't dispute that. I've written uh, a lot about how much more these things can and will and should grow for their appropriate uses economically. But that's a very different thing than saying that we're undergoing a massive transition to shift away from hydrocarbons. We aren't. In fact, given the scale of global energy demand coming in the next two decades, we're going to need every scintilla of additional inexpensive wind and solar that's possible to produce in a sensible way because the global demands are so great. But the implication for investors is that if they're betting at the scales that wind and solar are going to basically replace oil and gas and, uh, and coal globally, then the forward assumption that those values would be reflected in that level of demand uh, is they're going to be disappointed. Put differently, they're going to lose money. Uh, I'm far less worried about people losing money investing in, let's say, Exxon uh, than in a solar company. I think the expectations for Tesla's and solar companies outstrip the delivery of what they can do in the next decade. And the expectations that oil and gas is going to go away are wildly uh, uh, unlikely.
0: Before we go, are there any other projects or anything that you think our listeners might be interested in uh, that you're working on either at Manhattan or
1: Northwestern there? Well, let's see. Uh, that's a good, good question. With the Manhattan Institute, my, uh, my next exploration is on the uh, energy infrastructure of the uh, cloud, of the global Internet. So that uh, paper will be out this fall uh digging into not where things are but where they're going at northwestern what we're exploring is the the next generation of manufacturing which is extremely exciting it's probably the not probably but it will be a far bigger revolution than the purported revolution in energy a lot of extremely interesting things happening in manufacturing we're sort of going to face a kind of second industrial revolution in manufacturing in the coming decades and then Lastly, uh, as you noted in my in- introduction, I'm a strategic partner in a venture fund, Cottonwood Venture Partners. We're we're be- investing in the uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning software companies that are specifically targeting the oil and gas industry. We're one of the only, we may be the only dedicated fund doing that. And we're doing that because it's such a big industry. You know, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry globally. And it's um, therefore one of the most uh, effective and productive places you can go and, and bring the efficiencies from uh, artificial intelligence and uh, generate again i guess the obvious metric that societies wanted for years more and less costly energy
0: yeah about a month ago i had a guest on from prt discussing uh, the role of machine learning and operating the grid and things, and it's really one of the sort of untold stories of innovation Um, in the past couple of years. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Well,
1: a lot of the discussion that's been going on is about making the, quote, grid smarter. The grid's already smart. The grid's been smart for 50 years, but we can make it smarter. So the idea of a smart grid is sort of a misnomer. It is smart. We're making it smarter. But most of the rest of the industrial economy, in what we mean by smart, which is the infusion of sensors and software, most of the other industrial economy is not smart yet because it's very difficult to do. And that's what's coming, both in manufacturing and in agriculture. But you know, there's lots of investors looking at many of these areas and lots of uh, uh, university research. But we picked oil and gas again for the obvious uh, uh, reason. It's, a, it's an enormous sector. It's the single largest source of global energy uh, by a huge margin and uh, will be for a long time. So it's a good place to go hunting for uh, uh, exciting uh, applications of uh, AI and machine learning.
0: My guest today has been Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute. Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk today.
1: Thanks for having me, good chat.